from the Heritage Foundation. I'm Tim Desher, and this is Heritage Explains. It's been a hectic two weeks in Iran. Here's a short recap. Two oil tankers attacked early this morning in the Gulf of Oman, with one actually on fire. This comes during heightened tensions between the U.S. and Iran. Just moments ago, the Pentagon authorized an additional 1,000 American troops to the Middle East in response to growing concerns over Iran, where tensions have been quickly mounting. Just today, Iran moved to increase uranium enrichment levels and break the stockpile limits set by the 2015 Obama nuclear deal within the next 10 days. The threat comes on the heels of last week's oil tanker attacks in the Gulf of Oman, which the U.S. says Iran is clearly behind. In Iran today, after Iran shot down an unmanned U.S. Air Force drone that it says violated Iranian airspace early this morning, Iran time, the U.S. insists this drone was flying in international airspace, calling the incident, quote, an unprovoked attack. Now, this all happened within a week's time. And while many of the talking heads on TV were debating what the U.S. response would be, President Trump cleared the air. Sort of. In the now famous tweet, he said, quote, On Monday, they shot down an unmanned drone flying in international waters. We were cocked and loaded to retaliate last night on three different sites when I asked, how many will die? 150 people, sir, was the answer from a general. Ten minutes before the strike, I stopped it. Not proportionate to shooting down an unmanned drone. End quote. And of course, with that, the talking heads on cable news had a field day. I think part of the problem here is that Donald Trump comes from the world of TV, where nothing is real. Nothing mm. has actual consequences. And he, when he, it suddenly occurs to him that this isn't a TV show and that people are going to shoot back, uh, I think that that changes his calculation at the last minute. The president is listening to Laura Ingram, Tucker Carlson, Tom Cotton, none of whom are national security experts. They don't have the expertise. Who he's not listening to is the CIA director, the, the joint chairman of the Joint Chiefs, the Secretary of Defense, uh, the acting Secretary of Defense, the Secretary of State, and some of the other people who should be providing input in terms of a primary committee as what the long-term U.S. strategy should be. What we're seeing is a, a ratcheting up of the tensions. In the Straits of Hormuz, there are going to be possibly severe consequences all the way around. And this administration, I think, has got to figure out and tell both its allies as well as its adversaries, this is where we're trying to go and why. This is why we canceled the Iran nuclear deal. This is why we're doing maximum pressure. This is what we're supposed to get on the other side. Still unclear what that's supposed to be. A few days following the president's decision to cancel the potentially deadly strike, the president announced new sanctions on Iran. Sanctions imposed through the executive order that I'm about to sign will deny the Supreme Leader and the Supreme Leader's office 
and those closely affiliated with him and the office access to key financial resources and support. The assets of Ayatollah Khomeini and his office will not be spared from the sanctions. These measures represent a strong and proportionate response to Iran's increasingly provocative actions. We will continue to increase pressure on Tehran until the regime abandons its dangerous activities and aspirations, including the pursuit of nuclear weapons, increased enrichment of uranium, development of ballistic missiles, engagement in and support for terrorism, fueling of foreign conflicts, and belligerent acts directed against the United States and its allies. But like everything else, there are many sides to this story. Many speculate that the president's actions weren't enough and the sanctions won't work. Some demanded an attack. Others are frustrated at just another conflict in the Middle East. So what's the right move in this situation? How is the president handling it? And is this just a big miscalculation by Iran? To bring clarity to this murky situation is Dr. James Carafano. He works here at Heritage as the vice president of the Davis Institute for National Security and Foreign Policy. He's also the E.W. Richardson Fellow. This week, he explains. Dr. Carafano, thank you so much for joining us on Explains this week. Hey, good to be with you. You said in your recent piece uh, in Fox News, and and I'm going to link to uh, both of your pieces that you did last week, and you said earlier today that that's what happens when you're sleep deprived. That's so, it's a great inspiring thing <laughs> to not have any sleep. Yeah, but you've been, that's just a, a product. All this is a product of a lack of sleep. If so. only we could get the whole world to fight on Eastern Standard Time, things would be way so much better. So moving to the piece, I, and again, this is really, really great information, folks. So you got to log in and, and, and read this, but we're going to do our best to explain it here. Dr. Carafano, a lot has happened over the last week in Iran, and uh, we're going to go back and forth uh, between the left and the right arguing against each other. But maybe you could just catch us up a little bit on what's going on there. Yeah. So maybe we ought to start with a really big picture and then work our way down. Um, look. The United States is a global power with global interests and global responsibilities. That's just a fact. We do business and we care about things which are important to us all over the world. doesn't make us the world's policeman. doesn't make us the world's babysitter. It just means that we have to be around the world protecting things that are important to the United States. Well, there are really three parts of the world that knit North America to the United States to the rest of the world. And they are Western Europe, the Middle East, and Asia. And so what the United States wants as a foreign policy is we generally want those parts of the world to be at peace. They don't have to be the land of milk and honey. I mean, there can be bad things going on, but but we want them essentially to be stable. Because as long as they're stable, then we can either get where we need to be to protect our interest, or we could be forward to protect our interest. And so um, the Middle East is important, not just as one of those three, but also because what happens in the Middle East often spills over into Western Europe. So, okay, so we want a stable Middle East. Well, why do we care about the Gulf? Especially since a lot of people say, well, look, aren't we self-sufficient on petrochemicals, on oil and gas? And the answer is yes, an enormous strategic advantage for the United States. But we still care about the 15 percent, 15% of the world's oil that flows through the Gulf. And the reason for that is oil is a global commodity. It's traded globally. So if you take 15% of the world's oil off the market, it impacts us just as much as anybody else. And it impacts the global economy. That's not good for us. And then 
that 15% of the oil, a lot of that oil goes to people who are either our partners and allies or countries that do a lot of business with. We don't want to see their economies tank because of the Iranians either. And, and last is the United States is interested in freedom of the seas. It allows us to go around the world and do our business. And we're particularly interested in freedom of the seas and the freedom of navigation in what's called strategic waterways, parts of the world that almost everybody transit, including our ships and our carriers. And the Gulf is one of those. So we have an interest in keeping those waterways open. And so if that's the job, right, then from a military perspective, you know, as somebody that was in the military for 25 years and, you know, I was in the War College, I worked in the Pentagon, and I saw how military put plans get put together, you look and say, well, wh- what makes sense for what we're doing in the Gulf? And you have to have forces there to keep the waterways open, right? And to deter the Iranians from trying to close them. Iran has technically, they have uh, denied responsibility for attacking the oil tankers last week. And and that was actually the justification for us sending troops. Um, the president said that Iran is responsible. Iran said we're not responsible. So those attacks and, and your uh, explanation of keeping the waterways free and keeping the flow of, of commerce and oil through there is important. Um, so you would say that the thousand troops is absolutely justified. Right. And let me look, let me tell you how Iranians think, right? Like, how could they do something and then deny they're doing it? That, To most people, that would seem to make no sense. But it makes sense from an Iranian perspective. The Iranians are in a tough part of the world. In that part of the world, if you aren't strong and powerful, you're basically on the menu, right? And so when, as the U.S. pushes back on Iranian influence in Syria, in Yemen, in Iraq, uh, sanctioning the Iranians, to the rest of the region who they're trying to intimidate and overwhelm, they look weak. So they have to push back against the United States. So they, they've they got to find ways to do that, such as sabotaging these tankers and pipelines. On the other hand, the Iranians aren't stupid. You know, there would be lots of bad, bad things if there was an American-Iranian war. Many, many, many people would suffer. But the absolute one thing that we know for a fact that would happen is that the regime in Tehran would cease to exist. So if you're a regime and you're just interested in surviving, the last thing you're going to do is actually want to pick a war with the United States. So they're in this weird place where they want to do aggressive things and they want everybody to know they did aggressive things so that so they can show everybody they're tough. But on the other hand, they want to deny they're doing them because they also don't want to escalate with the United States. And they want to try and keep the United States from building a coalition to pressure and isolate Iran. Yeah, which is just so funny and coincidental that after we announce we're sending troops just out of nowhere, Iran shoots down one of our drones. Look, I I get politics. I get that people are partisan. I get that. They want to get elected. They don't want the other guy. I get all that. But for anybody in the United States to actually buy the Iranian line that they didn't have anything to do with sabotaging the tankers, they didn't show, that is just beyond shameful. I mean, to take the side of this authoritarian regime, look, um, the evidence that we actually have of them physically sabotaging the tanker, that is very conclusive. I mean, so conclusive that I think that's sufficient evidence that in a U.S. court of law, you could convict somebody of sabotage. You know, as far for um, claiming that the U.S. drone was in Iranian airspace, therefore they had a right to shoot it down, um, a Global Hawk, which is a high-altitude high surveillance aircraft, is an incredibly powerful um, surveillance platform. 
the Global Hawk did not need to fly in Iranian airspace to see everything in Iranian airspace it needed to do to surveil that airspace. And Global Hawks don't get lost. <laughs> so I think just the claim that somehow it it's straight into their airspace, that I, I, I think it's just farcical. And to actually see Americans, some of them politicians, some of them actually government officials, take the Iranian side, I, I just shows the height of partisanship. We used to say, you know, politics ends at the water's edge. Um, apparently, for some people in America, it doesn't. So what is the response then to, to this? I know um, there was word that uh, the president was 10 minutes away from you know doing a, a response uh, airstrike and, and, and that kind of thing, but he, he withdrew that. Uh, a lot of people on, on the right were saying that he should have gone through with that. What's your response to that? What, what is the proper response to uh, them shooting down one of our drones? Well, I, I actually think the president made the right call uh, and... And, and he used the right word when he said a proportional response. Um, there isn't an, an absolute requirement for the United States to proactively attack Iranian targets because they shot the drone down. Um, we can complain, we can protest, but there's no loss of life there. There's no significant impingement on the U.S. capability to keep the straits open or continue to its mission. Um, therefore, you could argue having warned the Iranians and that that that's probably sufficient. Now, if they actually killed Americans, then you might do something different. And and I might say, what would what would make sense? Well, look, what would make sense is something that's not a punitive strike. Punitive strike means we're going to punish them for attacking us. What you would do is something called a counterstrike, which means that you would eliminate the threat to U.S. forces and capabilities. And you might ask, well, well, why do we care about being proportional? Why don't we just, you know, bring the hammer down? And the answer is, look, in addition to keeping the waterways open, we're trying to isolate and sanction the regime. Therefore, even though we can do this by ourselves, the more international pressure we bring and the more allies we bring to the table in this mission, the more effective the isolation of Iran is going to be. And I think that's a higher priority. And by the United States being disciplined and proportional in its response to the Iranians, I think that helps us build the case that the Iranians are really the bad guy here. So I I have got to give the president all the credit. I think he did exactly the right thing. And I think much of the criticism that we saw over the weekend, much of it based on just newspaper reporting, much of the reporting inaccurate, partial information, just blatant assumptions or just political bias. It was like people were Monday morning quarterbacking and they without actually having watched the game on Sunday. I mean, it's just some of it was just horrible. We're going to get right back to our conversation with Dr. Carafano, but first, this. Do conversations about the Supreme Court leave you scratching your head? Then subscribe to SCOTUS 101, a podcast breaking down the cases, personalities, and gossip at the Supreme Court. In your piece in the New York Post, uh, which again, it was a great headline. I, I imagine it's driving a lot of people to, to read it. You said Iran is boxing itself into a corner by provoking the U.S. You said Iran is stuck on stupid, and it knows it. As long as Trump doesn't overplay his hand, he can keep Tehran on the run for a very long time. How would he overplay his hand in this situation? Yeah. Well, you know, I got to be honest with you. I didn't write the headline. And I actually had a different headline. Mine was like Iran was caught between the bases because I thought for the New York Post, that is like a way better metaphor, right? <laughs> so in baseball, right, when the runner leaves first, right, and he thinks he can steal second, 
but he gets caught, right? So that, you know, and then they run this guy down, second and first, second and first, right? And to me, that's what Trump has done is the Iranians tried to ratchet things up and get away with something and Trump caught them and they're kind of caught in the middle. They can't back down, but they really can't go forward. So they're kind of, they're kind of stuck on stupid. Um, You know, one of the things that we, some of the reporting we said that, you know, maybe the Iranian government didn't intentionally shoot the drone down. That there is some reporting that that it might have been done independently by an IRGC commander. That's the military militia that controls much of the assets that may have done that without authorization. And so, again, it, it, it suggests that maybe Iran wasn't really interested in escalating. And again, the president made the, the right choice by uh, by holding back. But I do think the U.S. holds all the cards because Iran is politically isolated. Their economy is in terrible shape. The sanctions have been horribly effective uh, at really limiting the regime. Iran doesn't really have a way to close the waterways, and they can't really escalate confrontation without risking counterstrikes from the U.S. military. So they don't have a lot of really good cards to play. Explain, explain sanctions to me as a non-foreign policy kind of person, uh, which I am not a foreign policy person. Explain one, just explain how sanctions are really affecting Iran. I mean, you know, we can we can put all sorts of sanctions on them, but they're going to go elsewhere to 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 make up for that. How how are how are we really uh, affecting them um, through putting sanctions on? Yeah, I mean, the way sanctions work is is really easy to explain. It's like do do the math, right? So. Iran does business with people. I mean, pick a number. You do a billion dollars of business with Iran. I just made that number up. Um, those same people do business with other people. They do business with the United States. So maybe they do $50 billion of business with the United States and $1 billion with Iran. And the United States says, dude, if you do business with them, you can't do business with us. So any businessman looks at that and goes, oh, okay, that's not going to work for me, right? And if you're an international bank and you have to finance these things, or you're an insurance company and you insure these things, pretty much everybody gets the message that doing business with this guy does not make any sense. So Iran's economy is heavily, heavily dependent on oil revenue. Their oil revenue has dried up dramatically. And it's not just that stuff they can sell and things, but it's what brings in hard currency and hard cash. Because Iranian money is increasingly worthless because of the inflation, because the economy's dead dead in the water. And so they're really dependent on hard cash from external countries coming in to fund things. And that's just drying up. So it's, and and remember, the Iranian government isn't just paying for the Iranian government. They're supporting surrogates all over the regions. The Houthis in Yemen fighting the the Saudis, uh, the militias in Syria, the Hezbollah in Lebanon, uh, militias in Iraq, so they're paying for and – and they've got to pay everybody off because they're an authoritarian regime. You stay in power by bribing everybody that has the guns to keep you in power. Um, just keeping that structure in place costs a fortune. There's no money left for health care and potatoes. So uh, that's why the Iranian economy is in the shape it's in. How much of this is related to uh, the U.S. withdrawing from the Iran deal that Obama had made and, and then uh, uh, when Trump was elected, uh, walked that back? You know, I think honestly, almost none. Okay. You know, I remind people that Iran became the sworn enemy of the United States after the Iranian Revolution. That was in the 1970s. It was like five presidents ago. So Iran's treated America like an enemy forever. And even under the Iran deal, which was negotiated under President Obama, Iran did not stop hating America. They did not 
stop attacking America's interest. They didn't stop destabilizing the uh, region. All they stopped doing was a certain level of nuclear activities in their in their um, civil nuclear side uh, for a agreed period of time in return for billions of dollars and access to uh, trade with uh, Western European countries and the rest of the world. So Iran is, um, you mentioned um, in your piece, um, that Iran is waiting out President Trump. Um, what what do you mean by that? Yeah, no, I think that's right. I think from the Iranian perspective, and you know, the Iranians and North Koreans talk to each other all the time. And so the North Koreans are negotiating with Trump and they're coming back and they're telling the Iranians what they think. And then the Iranians are kind of making up their own mind. I think from the Iranian perspective, they listen to you know American advisors, Americans who have come to Iran to talk to the leaders from you know the political opposition. They listen to Europeans uh, and they listen to North Koreans and they think, well, maybe this guy won't be here in two years. And we've already seen a handful of Democratic presidential candidates promise that they'll come back to the Iran deal. So we'll open up to the West again. We'll get more money coming in. We won't have to do anything for that. And so from their perspective, the easiest thing to do is just wait Trump out. Just wait two years and hope he's gone. Right? I, would, I wouldn't blame him. I'd do the same thing. Like I said, in the meantime, as Trump pressures down on them, they can't afford to look weak. So they have to do a certain level of activity to push back just to show that they're the tough guys they think they are. But, but I honestly think that the, the odds of the Iranians actually coming to the table before, they're, before they have no other alternative but to deal with Trump are uh, unrealistic. Will they come back to the table? Well, let's look at history. You know, the reason why they negotiated with Obama is because under Bush, we put such heavy sanctions in place that the Iranians actually felt squeezed and then they felt like they had to do a deal. Um, if they did it once, who's to say they won't do it again, except maybe this time we'll insist on a deal that actually serves our interests and not Iran's. So last question here. Moving forward, I guess the best option then for the Trump administration is to just continue with the sanctions or what What more can we do moving forward? I, I think the sanctions, uh, in addition, the political and diplomatic isolation, uh, keeping the military forces in place to keep the waterways open. And, you know, we can do this. We did this before. In the 1980s, there was a thing called the tanker war in which the Iranians tried to close the Gulf and the Reagan administration went in and we positioned, actually positioned assets on oil platforms in the Gulf. And we basically ran patrols and you, you didn't have to have a, a, a carrier there. I mean, and we could do that forever. So we know how to do this and we've done it before. So uh, I think the combination of keeping the waterways open, the sanctions, the political pressure, uh, these are things that will keep, I think, Iran at bay uh, until they realize that their, their only real option is to come back and negotiate a real deal. I think that that we're several years off from that. But in the meantime, I think this administration can do a lot to keep peace and stability in the region. And and actually, if you listen to our friends in, in that part of the world, as opposed to the pundits and the media and everything else, they're actually sitting there cheering the United States and saying, yeah, you're doing exactly the right thing. Maybe some yoga and definitely some sleep for you coming up here. <laughs> uh, yeah, yoga and coffee, which I know don't seem like they go together, but at Heritage, you know, they do. Thank you so much, Dr. Carafano. Thank you. 
That's it for this week's episode of Heritage Explains. And you can find all of Dr. Carafano's work on Iran in the show notes. And it's really, really good stuff. You're going to get the full perspective. Uh, We tried our best to capture all of it here on the show today, but there's so much more there. So please head on over to the show notes. And, uh, And also, if you want to see him appear on TV... Uh, You can visit YouTube. The Heritage Foundation YouTube page has all of his recent appearances kind of going over all of what's been happening uh, in Iran. And if you are one of our faithful YouTube listeners, first of all, thank you. We love seeing how active you are in the comments section. It really is fun to read them. So please keep them coming. Uh, It's a great way for us to know how to improve the show. And if you aren't into leaving public comments, please shoot us an email at managingeditor at heritage.org. That's managingeditor at heritage.org. We love hearing from you, and we do take your suggestions. Heritage Explains is produced by Michelle Cordero and Tim Descher, with editing by Thalia Rampersad.